Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm so honored, Joyce McGuire Pavo, that you have granted me this interview. We know each other for 40 plus years or so, way back to when you were getting your master's from Harvard with Maureen, my first wife. Uh, and uh, you've been my educator. I took a workshop with you. But let me just read a little bit more and extol your, your accomplishments. You're amazing. Uh, so this, this podcast, this interview is really about a new frame for adoption that you have pioneered uh, and being an adoptee yourself. And if I remember correctly, you, you even became a PI and were one of the first to search for your biological mother. Am I remembering? No, but that's correctly. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> well, we can anyway. Uh, Joyce, you are a psychologist, you're a, a, a trained social worker, licensed mem uh, marriage and family therapist. Uh, you've been a lecturer of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Uh, you've been a, a clinical member and approved supervisor of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. You've been on every board, every organization on adoption, really, in the world, and you've been pioneering the frame that that adoption should be about finding families to fit the child versus the old system of finding a child for you know uh, for a family, a parent-centered. You're advocating a child-centered approach in your work. Um, and having the meta system look uh, 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 about family and community being supportive to this whole process. Um, you have a private practice. You still do gobs of training and lecturing and flying around the world. You have Pavo Consulting and Coaching, a website that people can find out more. And I read your book, The Family of Adoption, when Misha, my wife, and I went to Ukraine, what is now uh, owned by Russia, actually, Simferopol, uh, in the first invasion of Ukraine back in 2014 by Putin. Anyway, you taught me what, uh, so much about how to think about being a pa adoptive parent. And of course, our son is now 19 and a half, I might add. Um, and with that beginning intro, um, you've been training therapists, you've been teaching parents, you've been helping do therapy for adoptees on their unique things. So I'm going to pass the baton to you and say, we have a large audience, it's global, and uh, what, what do you think people need to know about, about the, you know, the whole subject? Well, that's a broad... Uh, yes, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, I think a lot has changed and a lot needs to change in the world of adoption. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I was adopted in 1946, back uh -huh. in the old, old days. And at that time, it was post-World War II. 
and there were plenty of babies and you could closely match them with their parents. Mm. Um, There was no international, well, no, I mean, there were probably occasionally situations, but there really wasn't transracial or international adoption happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, growing up in the 50s, people didn't talk about anything. Parents didn't tell their children anything. It was, you couldn't say the word cancer out loud. Um, Everything was very quiet and under the radar. So adoption wasn't really talked about. Mm -hmm. And as I was growing up, I was, my mother used to blame it on my red hair, but I was very curious and I wanted to know things. And I asked a million questions and, um, and I didn't get the answers I needed. So I think that's what led me to my job, my work, my profession. I um, originally, I thought I'd go to medical school, but along the way, I realized that Mm -hmm. I didn't really like chemistry. And, (laughs) And I realized that uh, this was an area that didn't have enough attention. There were some wonderful people, you know, my good friend, B.J. Lifton, who's since passed away. And and there were plenty of people doing some thinking about adoption, but there was no clinical work being done and there was no awareness of the mental health. I just want to state for my listeners, they know Robert J. Lifton so well, but Betty Jean Lifton was his wife. Yes. And was very yeah. big champion in adoption issues. Yes, and, and my very dear friend, and right. I miss her terribly. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think when I started my program, and I started a clinic that mm-hmm. uh, was the only one in this country for many, many, many years, 30 years, Mm-hmm. Um, what was unusual about it was that all the other people doing any work in adoption uh, were also doing placement of children. Mm. And I felt that was a conflict of interest because how can you really help the birth families and the adoptive families if your business is to place these children? And how can you really understand what the child needs in the midst of that? So the unusual part of my clinic was that it had nothing to do with placement. Mm-hmm. It uh, We provided services to adoption, foster care, kinship care, donor families, uh, you know, anyone that had an emotional or legal adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we really looked at the child as the centerpiece. Like yes. you said, my, my famous quote is adoption is about finding families for children, not about finding children for families. Right. And I think that is still a very important concept. Mm-hmm. What we learned over the years, okay, this is my speed reading course. I'm, okay. I'm just going to give you. Please. Um, what we learned over the years is that there was a lot of trafficking going on. There was um, there was a great deal of international trafficking, and it was nothing that the adoptive parents knew about or thought about. Mm-hmm. And it it was also not something the birth parents knew. Sometimes children were what they called harvested mm. from families in rural parts of countries, and they were then, uh, you know placed in orphanages and said to be orphans. Wow. Um, and then they were available for adoption. It was a way to increase adoptions. And um, 
And it wasn't really done in a way that made sense. It, it didn't uh, think about the child. And we know this now. I'll jump forward and then back. Yes, please. Be- because uh, social networking and uh, DNA testing, you can find anyone. Mm-hmm. And so now we no longer have all those covers and all right. those secrets. They're being unearthed very right. carefully. Um the other thing is that even in foster care, we have children who are removed for the wrong reasons. There are plenty of children who would benefit from a family that could care for them and keep them safe. Right. There will always be adoption. There always has been. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way we do it and and what we do to create it needs to be looked at much more carefully. Um, I, I don't think poverty is a reason to take a child from their family. Um, we we need to think of different things to support families that should stay together. And we need to provide care and comfort and homes for children who can't have that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of things have changed. And one of the biggest things is, uh, I think I was on the early pioneering road for this, but Nowadays, we have amazing researchers and therapists who are transracially adopted, internationally adopted. Their voices are very important Mm -hmm. because they will tell you, as I will, what needs to be different, how we need to talk to children, how we need to, uh, you know, not keep secrets from them about themselves. Yeah. And um, what supports the families need in order to do this in the best possible way Mm. and how to create contained and careful open adoptions. Yes. Because they're all going to be open in two minutes with DNA and uh, social media, as I said. I have 11 year olds finding their birth families in Colombia mm-hmm. um, and all mm-hmm. even if they don't speak Spanish, they can, they can do the translation that, you know, it's just not possible to keep these secrets. Right. So it's really important to do it in a careful way and to provide supports to families and kids. Yeah. Um, that's a quick overview. There's so many other things, Steve, but I'm just going to stop for a minute and see where you want me to go. Yeah. So I guess I want to start by asking you to say more about the trafficking piece, because that's an area, labor trafficking and sex trafficking, that I'm very interested in due to my work with undue influence. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's a big uh, need for for children, for babies. Mm-hmm. Not only for nefarious reasons, but for adoption. Right. And so there are people who take advantage of that and who create situations where children appear to be orphans and are, you know, placed with families when they have perfectly functional and good, kind families. Right. Um, there for them. The the sad thing is, I've worked with many adults or young adult adoptees who have gone back to their countries of origin and have found their birth parents mm-hmm. and have learned that they weren't meant to be adopted and that they weren't orphans mm-hmm. and that, you know. That really ruins their trust and it ruins the relationship. We want to know in the best of all possible worlds, we want to be as transparent as possible. We know, we want to know what's going on, why it's going on. 
honesty and openness in adoption right. is most important. Right. And, you know, there are models, uh, there are ancient models for open adoption where there's a change of role and responsibility. Mm -hmm. so, some people will not be the parents of this child. They'll always be the birth mother or birth father. Yes. Um, but they'll become more like a special aunt or uncle. And the parents who legally um, raise these children will become the parents. Right. And there are models for that from ancient times, and there will be going forward. But mm -hmm. it has to be open. It can't be secrets. It right. needs to be known. And um, in the best interest of the child, it really needs to be something that people can talk about and know how to talk about in yeah. a way that gives the child the information they need. Yeah, destigmatizing and making yes. it transparent and open. So I just want to comment on something that you said earlier that really resonated with my 46-year career, and that is, is there are more um, therapists now who had our adoptees who are doing the clinical work related to taking their life experience. And in my work, former members of cults who become mental health yeah. professionals yeah. are uniquely situated to understand the unique challenges. Well, I want to say something about that, Steve. I ran a clinic for many years, about 30 years. We used to take about six interns a year mm -hmm. and staff, and we wanted the staff to reflect the clients. So we had a lot of diversity. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's not always the best thing. If someone hasn't done their own work, yes, and, and if they have a very strict perspective, um, they may not be the best person to be. So good a lot point. of people will. A lot of people will say, "Oh, I've had this experience, so I'm really good at it." And not <laughs> always true. Not so, always true. I I totally resonate with that in my field, as as well for sure. The next thing I just want to comment on and get your comment is that in the last year, year and a half, I've been doing a lot of research on uh, indigenous. Uh, people who were literally kidnapped from their families, put in residential religious schools, and in many cases beaten, tortured, their yeah. hair was cut, their culture. Could, would you say a few words about Yeah, no, that's that there are so many terrible situations of that sort. One of my favorite plays, I highly recommend it, uh -huh. um, is called... The Indolent Boys by Scott Marmaday. And I, I can't give you a good, um, I, I, I don't have my Google brain on. Right, but, no um, worries. Scott Marmaday is a Native American. I can't remember if he's Canadian or, or from the U.S. Uh -huh. uh, but he's a wonderful playwright. And this play is about the uh, boys, the indolent boys that were, that were taken and placed in a religious school. Mm. And, you know, adoption is a lot like this in some ways. They're stripped of their background, their family, their culture, their religion, and they are taught to be something that they aren't which if it were open and if there were support for it, 
wouldn't be such a bad thing. We we can give examples of mm. uh, different people who end up being very bilingual, bicultural, and uh-huh. fine about it. But to take someone in the way that these children were taken and in the way that many adopted children are taken and to strip them of everything that they had is just so terrible. There's a a meme that I like. I find some memes are so brilliant. Mm. Um, And this one says, uh, if I lost my entire family in a car accident or in the Ukraine in my village being bombed, yeah. you would have great empathy and feel really bad for me. Right. But if I'm an adoptee who's been adopted and has lost my entire family and culture, mm. um, you would think how lucky I am to have found the family I wow. have with, without paying any attention to the trauma and the tragedy that preceded that. Yes. So I think that's, I I think that these children that you're interested in um, are are similar in many ways and certainly are, you know, stripped of of everything that's important to them. Right. And many of them don't know their native languages anymore and they're not on the reservation and they feel alien to their culture. They feel alien when they search also. Many of the adoptees that I work with, uh, when they find their birth family and go back to their birth culture, they may not have the language. Right. They may need a translator. Um, I'm always very picky about the translator because you can translate words. Right. Anyone who knows both of the languages can translate words. But can you translate the words with the emotion? Right. Can you translate uh, more about that? And yeah, that's what's so important. Yes. Yeah, the empathy. So I, I want to just say for our listeners, um, you really helped me a lot be prepared for becoming a parent. And I was an older parent. Uh, you said, record everything, like videotape, take pictures, get names, get you know, as much information about the birth family as possible. Uh, And I did that. And you also said, my son will let us know when he wants that information, like don't push it too soon. And um, I remember, I think he was in second or third grade, and he asked something innocuous, but we thought he was asking about his birth family and we started talking about siblings and he regressed like back to diapers when we first got him they didn't have diapers at the orphanage they lined up the kids on little plastic potties and they sat there till they went and did their business but he regressed and we we you know periodically say when you're ready we have a lot of information uh you know, but he's not ready yet, and he's nineteen. So, one, so comment on that about timing, of uh, and you said always be open, share that he's from Ukraine, educate him about the culture, which we've done that too. But say a little bit more for our listeners. Well, um, I think first of all, whenever there's something going on in the world, the kids from that part of the world are really affected. So right now I'm dealing with a lot of kids from Russia and Ukraine who are 
really, I mean, all of us watching CNN or, you know, it's it's devastating. Um, But if you think that your family of origin is there suffering, it's huge. So all of this goes on uh, throughout life with different things of that sort. Um, what what I think is important, I don't know, one of the things that I do, Steve, with some families, and each child in each family is different. Right. Um, and so and some families can talk about this from a very early age and and weave it in. And for other families, maybe one partner or the other has a different feeling about it. So it's you have to be very respectful. Yeah, um, it's not in the best interest of the child if the parents aren't going to be able to hold it in a certain way. Right. Um, so I think that's that's incredibly important. One of the things that I do, I just did it recently. Um, I'm working with an 11 year old and his parents, and uh, he's from a Latin American country. And um, he's, you know, he's really beginning to want to know things, but he doesn't want his parents to know that he wants to know them because uh-huh. this is it. This is what we call divided loyalty. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of children, they love their parents, so they don't want to hurt them by thinking about their other parents, right. their past parents. So this young man is, um, you know, he's having a hard time and he won't talk about it. So I had him on a Zoom with his parents and I asked him if he'd be my consultant and if he'd just be there and that after this session, I would talk to him alone. Uh-huh. And he he could speak anytime he wanted to, but he didn't have to say a word. He could just mm-hmm. observe. In the family so, session, you mean? In the family uh-huh. session. Uh-huh. So, And I would do this live, but I'm still doing Zooms because I have autoimmune issues. Yes, so, I hear you. So in the Zoom... Um, I asked the parents if they would tell the story of how their family came together, mm-hmm. um, how they came together and then how they decided to adopt this boy and what what, what happened along the way. And I said, I'm going to stop you every once in a while and I'm going to ask questions. And I'm also going to stop you every once in a while and explain things because I've been doing that. You, you, you have one, a case study of one, right. and I've worked with so many people that I may have a different view about this. Right. So um, it's fascinating when I do this because the kids can just listen. Right. And at the end, I'll say, did you have any questions? And they don't want to have questions in front of their parents. Sometimes they do, but most often not. Mm-hmm. And then I say, was there anything new that you heard? And all of it seems new to many of them because, mm. you know, even if you're telling the same story that right. you told 500 times, you use a different adjective right. or you, you're you telling me. So you tell me in a different way than you would tell him. Right. Uh, so it's fascinating. And it's a way to begin to have the child learn more without feeling like they're being forced mm-hmm. to learn more. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been pretty helpful. Uh, some kids are afraid to, to know more. They're, yeah, my they're, son doesn't want to watch news about Ukraine. It's too much. He just does yep. yep. too much. Yeah. Well, it is. It's terrible. Yeah. And it, it's it's terrible anyway. Right. But it's even more terrible if you think people who are incredibly important to you, even though you don't know them, are in that situation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for that. So I'm going to just ask also, again, assuming my listeners don't know much about adoption, but maybe they're adopted or maybe they have a you know, a nephew or a niece that's adopted. I want to, to educate people with your wisdom mm -hmm. and such. Um, talk about uh, attachment theory and your the latest understanding. Uh, in our case, we adopted our son at 22 months, which ideologically is past that critical initial period. What are your what is your experience and your thoughts about well? About it? What I, you know, it's very popular to diagnose children with reactive attachment disorder or with mm -hmm. attachment disorder. Uh -huh. And I'm opposed to that because you cannot have attachment anything without another. You, the child doesn't have attachment disorder, the child and whoever has uh, attachment disorder. Right. It's and, a relationship. It is. And mm -hmm. so I think it's really, we've done a disservice to adopted kids mm -hmm. by making them feel like there's something wrong with them. Mm. When there's something wrong with the system that removes them or a tragedy that disconnects them or, you know, all of right. those things. Um, now, a child who's adopted at 22 months, uh, that's a difficult Nine months and 22, 24 months are very difficult times. You know yeah. this. And, um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. There's, it happens a lot. It, now, that child may not trust in the beginning because of what they've been through in those 22 months, right. both more than 22 months in utero as well. Right. Um, so to me, that's not something wrong. That's something to be aware of and to prepare for. Great. And if you don't prepare the parents for that, they often feel rejected. Mm. They often feel like, you know, I've been waiting for this baby, this child, and now the child's here and they're, you know, avoidant or right. they're, you know, that I think we don't do enough to prepare parents and to explain that this is absolutely normal. This child will have reactions to things. This child doesn't, it's going to take them another 22 months to trust. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be slow going, but it will shift. Yeah. So that appreciation of client centeredness, that every person is different and every family is different is very important. Uh, and if anyone's listening to this who's a clinician, it's a very important frame to have rather than, than, than the ideology. And I love that you are rebelling against the, you know, the pathological naming yeah. of things. That said, I want to bring up another, you know, important thing with especially adoptees from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, is that um, uh, that of fetal alcohol exposure? Could you share some of your wisdom about that? Yes, it's um, you know obviously there is uh, you know there's a lot that happens to a child physiologically in utero. Yes, and um, and they're not just Russian and Ukraine. I right. mean, there are many uh, many birth parents what may lead them to having their child removed or to placing their child 
may be addictive behavior and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we understand that many of the children who come into the system, either in country domestically or internationally, right. may may have uh, some of these these issues. Mm-hmm. And again, it's very important to be aware of it, to provide early intervention, to do whatever we can. Sure. Uh, there and you know. It's hard to know. You just don't know which children are going to their disposition, their personality, their neurology, their I mean, everything is different about each child. And some people can overcome all kinds of things and can really grow. It's you just don't know. Uh, There's a wonderful adoptee who. she has she's made a movie and she's very she's she's terrific she was a domestic adoption she is african-american and Mm -hmm. adopted by a white family Mm -hmm. and her family had some children by birth and then they adopted children who were severely ill Mm. um that i mean they were just very good people and they they did this for the best interest of the children who needed families so they adopted this little girl who uh, the the wealth, child welfare people and the social workers all said that she would never walk mm. and that she had hearing problems and that she had all of these. So she it sounded pretty dismal. Right. And they got her, you know, all the supports and help that they could find. And in high school, she was a track star. Not only did <laughs> not only did she walk, she ran. And um, she's brilliant and she's wonderful. But she, she could have been a throwaway child if people just believed that she wasn't going to be able to succeed. And if you if you place that belief on a child every time they act out in a certain way, you can create something that isn't even quite there. Wow. Um, so I think it's very important for people to be as informed as they can possibly be, get the right supports that they can get gathered around them. I think when you're an adopted, when you're a parent, but when you're an adopted parent, especially, yeah, you have to become an educator you're going to psychoeducate your family and your friends yeah. because they're going to say, you know, we don't want you to bring Susie over. She's out of control. Uh-huh. She's completely out of control. And you have to say, let me explain, Susie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what's going on. This is what we're doing to help her without telling too much because it's her privacy that needs right. to be held. But Susie has some conditions that we're working on yeah and and we hope that you can uh, open your arms to her in the same way that we have so many adoptive parents don't get invited certain places if their child is acting out because they have fetal alcohol syndrome or because they have some other syndrome and i think it's really important to educate the people around you to educate the schools to educate the pediatricians even, yes. you know, it was a, not that long ago. I think it was 2015 that I wrote a, a chapter in a book that was written by a wonderful pediatrician. And it was the first whole book about adoption for pediatricians. Wow. First one in now, 2015. Wow. In all those years, there wow. were little snippets in different textbooks 
but not whole tomes of information that right. people should have. So even our our dearest uh, pediatricians and child psychologists don't often know very much about what's going on. They have assumptions. They're they're great people and they do really good work, but they may be misjudging some of the things that are happening. Yeah, that's amazing. What's the name of the pediatrician who wrote the book that you called? Dr. Lisa Albers. Lisa Albers, A-L-B-E-R-S? Oh, no, wait a minute. She married. Lisa Albers Prock, P-R-O-C-K is her last name. And she's at Children's. And um, she edited this with another um, another uh, adoption pediatrician. Great. So she's at Children's Hospital in Boston, yes, I assume. Yes, she is. She is. I was just in New Orleans at the American Psychiatric Association. Ah. And the Children's Hospital was there, was recruiting new people and uh, 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 and such. Um but this is so valuable. I guess listening to your story about this woman who who was told that you know her parents were told that she'd never walk. Uh, I want to share a personal story that we were advised to hire a pediatrician who could read Matthew's files or whoever we adopted uh, and advise us. Um, and she looked at his files and said, "Don't adopt this this child." Like this will be misery forever. You will never, you know, you won't have a life even. And um, he had medical problems, you know. So he had strabismus. His eyes weren't focusing. He wasn't speaking. Turned out his ears were all clogged and needed tubes to drain the infection, etc. But and then with the 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 ophthalmologist who did the surgery on his eyes said he'll never see three D because of this condition. And guess what? He sees 3D. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so he went to, he graduated high school. He's a gymnast. He's an extraordinary gymnast. We learned this on the first night after we left the orphanage to fly to Kiev to do the court stuff. And we put him in a wooden crib and he grabbed the top and flipped out. At 22 months, <laughs> I was like, "What?" Yeah. Anyway, personal stories, but I, I just I'm 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 wanting to to share this knowledge so badly. So share you you told me and us that adopted kids don't do well with transitions. Mm -hmm. Could you say some things about that? Sure. Um, I think transitions are hard for lots of kids and lots of people. Right. But I, I think that the stark transitions that adopted children go through uh, make transitions more difficult. It, it relates also to the trust-mistrust issue. You know, early on, if mm. you don't trust your surroundings and you don't trust, you know, children who grow up in orphanages also, um, they they have a situation where they don't have a caregiver. Right. They have different shifts of caregivers. Some right. are nice, some are not nice. Right. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that go on in that process. And I think that it makes it very difficult for kids. So um, transitions are just plain difficult. And to prepare, it's just really good to know that because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can you can ameliorate the problem by going through a little more 
uh, explanation than you would think that you had to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was recently working with a family where their child has decided to go to Colorado to college, mm-hmm. and they went out and looked at the school. It's a good placement for this child. It's terrific, um, and you know they were just going to then go out when it's time to go. And I said, "Can you afford to take another trip?" and bring his sister who he's very close to because she hasn't seen the school yet mm-hmm. and just go out and walk around the campus. And and now you know what dorm he's in. So show him that, um, you know, it will it will be a good thing to have him have more of a template in his mind, yes. because when he came to his adoptive family, there was no template. Here's your baby then you just go off into the sunset and, you know, that's right. that. Yeah, that's tricky. Say say something about all the kids who are not, you know, infant uh, three, which is like a highly valued age to adopt a child, and the older kids and what happens with them and foster care, which I hear is pretty much a nightmare for a lot of children, at least what I'm hearing. It can be. I, I think that we all we we get into this thinking and we believe ourselves. Uh, there are some amazing kids that end up in foster care um, that need a permanent placement and that want to be adopted. Yeah, they they want a family and, and kids don't outgrow families. Um, you know, they right. go home for holidays when they're 25, when they're 50, when they're I mean, you right. don't out, you don't outgrow a family. You need a family forever. Right. And and you can have more than one family. Um, it may be that these kids don't have families that are going to be there for them every time. But if they can find a family that's there for them, it's a really important thing. And some of these kids are unbelievably fabulous and they're not difficult. Right. Um, you know, there's a there's a myth that they're they're going to be impossible. And it's it, right. yes, they've they've often had more trauma. Yeah, um, they've often been exposed to more. Um, but people are resilient and people are incredible. I remember one little girl that I worked with who um, her mother was very mentally ill Mm. um, and her father worked three jobs. This is a foster parent situation. This was a girl and her her birth parents. Birth parents. And um, they were able to keep her and to keep the family together. She ended up being a bit of a parentified child. She was always taking care of her mother Mm -hmm. and her father died suddenly mm. and he was the one who did the three jobs and who kept the family together. When he died, social services came in and said, we can't have this 11 year old girl taking care of this person who needs mental health care. Right. So they put the mother in treatment and they put the child in foster care. Mm. And this was a, a girl who was a parentified child who knew how to take care of herself and her mother who was ill and everything. And she loved her foster family. And when it came time for them to adopt her, she said, I would appreciate it if you didn't adopt me. Oh, Would you guardian me so I can keep my family name 
and the memories of my father and so that I can feel connected to both you and them. So by then she was 12 or 13 and um, this was what was best for her. She stayed, I recently So mature. Well, that was so- well, well, she had done everything. She had she had done all the family building. Right. Um, so she was a great kid. This family, they adore her to this day. And um, she's now like a CFO of a big company. You know, these it's it's amazing how some kids turn out and how without any hope for them, you you're missing a chance to really give someone what they need. And teenagers are hard if they're, you know, they're going to act out whether they're adopted or by birth. There's a chance you're going to have some acting out. <laughs> For sure. Um, so, you know, just giving the parents support so they know what's normal and what's normal under the circumstances. Great, great. And you just mentioned how this person is a CFO and super accomplished. It seems to me like there are some really accomplished adopted Tees, want to name a few famous ones? Oh, I, I'm. There are so many. I don't know where to begin. Um, well, Steve Jobs is always everyone's favorite. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, and so no, yeah, say some more about that. I I don't know. Is there a compensatory thing to show that they're valuable? That they aspire to such heights? I don't well, know. you know, I, you know. Again, it's it's what you're given. I, it, when people ask, you know, is it nature or nurture? It's both. Yeah. It's it's a combination, and it's what people come with. What I find interesting, Steve, is the number of Olympic medal winners who are adopted. And um, you'll find when when they do the narratives about the life yes. story, there's always adoptees. And um, the or stories Simone of Mary, Biles, the most famous gymnast, absolutely was adopted absolutely. by her grandparents. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, I think they want to be seen. They want to be seen for who they are, and they're hoping that their birth family or people who didn't keep them will see them and see what they missed out on. Uh -huh. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot going on under the surface. Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah. so amazing. A couple of more things I want to ask you about in our remaining moments. Um, folks on the spectrum. Can you want to share you your know, clinical observations? Does it relate at all to adoptees or it just over, over um, you know, just reconnects? There's, there's no study that shows that there are more, a larger percentage. I think mm. it's pretty even. I mean, there are going to be, and we don't really know exactly what all of that is yet, which surprises me in this day and age. But right. um, yeah, I think that um, certainly that's something to add to the mix when you're right. trying to make sense of things. But we don't see, you know, there are pretty good statistics about the things that stand out. Unfortunately, there's a high percentage of suicides mm. in adoptees, and uh. that's especially international adoptees. And that's really upsetting. I didn't know um, that. That's yes. upsetting. Yeah. Yes, it is. And, um, and, you know, this pandemic has been very difficult for... Um, 
adolescent and young adult adoptees. Uh, I've never had as many referrals from McLean mm-hmm. for um, kids who are post-suicidal being released from the hospital and, and you know, working with their families and with them. Um, so that's a worry. I don't see the numbers in autism. I think they're okay. pretty... Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah. But I've been doing a lot of work on social media and its negative impacts on the brain and on children and adolescents and you know QAnon and you know uh, ISIS recruiting online, white supremacists yeah. recruiting online, and the the pandemic has forced more people to be socially isolated. Yes. You know, rather than playing in real life. And this push towards virtual reality uh, to and I'm I'm really pretty negative at the moment on the multiverse and the this virtual reality push because we need more people paying attention to reality and yes. doing yes. stuff in the real world to change it and not yeah. just adventure games and and movies. I couldn't agree more. I loved the work that Sherry Turkle did. Mm. Um, Sherry Turkle from MIT wrote a book called Alone Together Mm. about how relationships have changed since people are, you know, FaceTiming and and doing, you know, uh, all kinds of things on the Internet. And, you know, even some interesting statistics, there were more playground injuries because the caregivers weren't watching the children. They were watching their screens. Oh, my goodness. Well, that makes um, sense. Distraction. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, adolescence, you don't have to feel embarrassed or hurt when you break up with someone. You can just send a text and say, we're done. Mm. and break someone's heart. And I mean, these things are really affecting how we learn to relate to people right. and what kinds of communication we have and how how empathy continues. Um, right. I think there are a lot of problems that we're going to have to contend with pretty soon. Yeah, totally. And we need legislation to protect our uh, data privacy as yes. well as rein in the uh, the profit mode of, of the platforms and put in ethical checks and balances in a much bigger way. Absolutely. You know, for sure. Um, there's so much more I want to ask you. You're a, f- a fountain of knowledge, but I can't let you go without asking you to just share a little bit of your memories of Arit Baryam, oh. my first wife. <laughs> and I recently posted her theory of relational development that goes along with Eric Erickson's instrumental model. And you were there as yep. the, these thoughts. Yeah. Would you um, share a well, little? Well, Arit and I really loved hanging out together. We took several classes together, and one of them was a class with Eric Erickson. Mm. And he was hard of hearing at that point. So he would only have six to eight people in a class because we could sit around a round table. So my work was also on developmental issues for adolescents and adoption. And she and I had a lot in common. So we spent a a, a lot of time together. She was terrific. We did a project together with kids playing Mm. games and Mm. how they related to each other. And we we videotaped it. We did it for, I think, a Larry Kohlberg class or something. (laughs) But we had great professors and we it was it was so much fun to think about things. And she was a fun 
playmate to do that with. Yeah, she was great. And we used to have all those parties. We yeah. used to have the fun parties. Dance and, parties. Um, she yep, loved dance to dance. Parties. Yes, sure. indeed. indeed. So, so for those listening, Larry Kohlberg did a stage theory of moral development. And I'll add that Orit's mom, Miriam Baryam, who got her, uh, he was a psychologist from Harvard, did a lot of uh, pioneering work with Kohlberg and Kibbutzim. She was uh, uh, from Israel, uh, her mom, and uh, I think helped to co-write one of the journal articles that got published as well with Harit's theory. And I just I think people need to understand more about how important relational yes. development is, not just you know, individual identity, but our yeah. identity in relation with others. Absolutely. Relational development, moral development. We need a lot more of both of those. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I want to, you know, wrap up and ask you to speak to fellow adoptees around the world who might be hearing you for the first time. Any sage advice you'd like to share? Well, you know, one of my favorite trauma experts is Bruce Perry. Oh, I know Bruce. I, yeah, he's a great guy. Mm. And one of his um, quotes that's very simple, and I love it, is what's shareable is bearable. Mm. And um, there are so many wonderful groups. Um, I, I think Steve will probably post my website. Absolutely. Or my, we'll my, do a blog. And my email. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Sure. And, um, you know, please be in touch if you want to, and I'll, I'll hook you up with some of the really good. <laughs> I mean, there are some not great and some good Facebook groups. And, you know, you right. find some where people are, they're stuck and they're just angry and it doesn't fit you. So you go somewhere else or right. they're not angry enough. They're too fluffy. So, um, you know, I think it's important to find a place where you can sort of say what you need to say and think about what you need and process some of the things that are hard to process. I've been running a group with a writer um, and it's called the hour of power. It's one hour a week. And there are 15 adoptees from the UK, Canada, US, and each of them are very different and they're writing. Um, and, and so we're doing a lot of thinking about what they're writing about and a lot of processing about the experience of adoption, which is different for every one of them right. and for and for my co-leader who's adopted and myself. Yes. Um, but it's nice. There are several of those kinds of groups going on now. And if you can find the right little fit for you, I think it's great to have a place, a, a place to visit where yeah. you're not as different as you feel sometimes. Right. So uh, are there support groups other than Facebook? Because a lot of young people say, oh, Facebook, that's for old people. We don't do that. Yeah, I'm sure there are. The um, You know, I think during the uh, pandemic, a lot of people found Zoom groups or mm. Facebook groups, and those are the ones. I'm sure there are more, and I can um, I can probably find some kind of a list of them. Um, but it's it's worth checking out. I know. I mean, you know, some people don't like all kinds of different platforms, but if you find your place on that, you don't have to use it for anything else. Just zoom right into your group and enjoy the conversation and the support. 
Great. Wonderful. And as we really wrap up, if anyone from uh, the White House or any you know, institutional philanthropists um, uh, are saying, Joyce, what needs to be done? Like, what do we need to do? Your words well, are? And that's my whole, I'm, I'm working on a book about that. I ah. think we need, I think we need to completely deconstruct and reconstruct uh, the world of adoption. I think we need to have it be more child-centered. We need to understand the difficulties that all of the people involved are going through. I think this is a good time to do it because new parents don't have to depend on just adoption anymore. And they want to build a family. They can do it through donor, through surrogate. I mean, there are right. lots of, of different ways, which also need to be paid attention to because the impact on the child is, sure. is serious. Um, but I just think we need to deconstruct and reconstruct the entire system yep. and uh, do it with the child as the centerpiece. Okay, so you have training and awareness. You've trained countries and such as a public health priority. What what needs to happen? Because uh, earlier in this conversation, you talked about like training the parents how to parent. And I didn't say it at the moment, but I'm like, yeah, we have more that we have to learn to get a driver's license than to be a parent. We need, we need to be educated about how to be a good parent. I think we need to really talk about the roles and responsibilities of all of the parents. I think that since most of the kids eventually search for their birth families in all countries, mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to provide supports for certainly for the adoptive parents who are raising the children, but also for the birth parents so that if they should come back together, that they understand what's going on. It's very upsetting to an adoptee for a birth parent to ignore the adoptive parents completely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they it may be displaced anger. They may feel like the adoptive parents uh, abducted the child mm. when in fact someone else did that. And it's probably true in some cases, but it wasn't the parents. Right. And it's important that kids have the right supports and the right holding environment. Yeah. And, and then, forgive me, I'm circling back, but I'm just wondering about last words about those who search for their birth families who meet siblings. Um, well, it's um, that's one of the most important relationships. And that's one of the hardest things to have lost. I just spent yesterday um, at a barbecue at one of my brother's houses. Um, I, I have six brothers and a sister that I didn't grow up with, but that I met 50 years ago. Ah. So, uh, so I've had a relationship with them for a very long time. And um, I, I can't imagine not knowing my nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews. They're all so important to me. I, you know, it's just... It, what we take away from people by not allowing those connections right. is difficult. And it's important to see that in a different way. Yeah. Thank you so much for your incredible work, your incredible contribution. And, it, and I'm, I'm excited to hear you have a book 
project will can we do it again when the book is ready to be promoted? Absolutely, absolutely. That's great. I would That's love great. love to do that. And please stay in touch and continued success. Of course. You Thank take you. care. It's Thanks. wonderful spending time with you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut, and join our online community at IGotOut.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.